and we'll begin. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Uh, Father, we ask that you would that you would help us, Lord, that your spirit would guide us, Lord, through uh, this new series of First Peter, Lord, as we open up the scriptures and, and are challenged, Lord, with the depth of Peter's writing. Father, I pray that you would meet each person where they are, that you would, Lord, guide us, lead us, direct us on our walk with you. We each are in different places. And so, Father, this is a book that is, is weighty. Um, there are some very deep theological principles that are covered that can, um, my brain, I don't even think fully comprehends half of it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be merciful and gracious to me as I teach. Lord, help us to understand, uh, Lord, what your word is saying to us. Father, I pray that you would help us um, just to grow closer to you, Lord, that we would be more grounded in our faith. We thank you for your word, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And Father, we thank you for this word. We pray your blessing now. We ask for your help. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So so hang on. (laughs) We're going to go for a ride today. We have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I was very impressed with myself the last service. I I think I even finished early, but you're always in trouble when you have a pastor who thinks he has more time, so I will still try to finish on time. You might be thinking, how in the world can he take so long? There's only two verses there. Um, This book is deep. Uh, There's much in these two verses. Um, Luther describes 1 Peter in this way. He says it's as one, he describes First Peter as one of the most noblest books in the New Testament. Uh, the Baker exegetical commentary on First Peter says this: uh, Perhaps this letter's universal relevance is due to its presentation of how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundational principle by which the Christian life is lived out within the larger unbelieving society. Uh, The reason I find this quote so significant is because American Christians, we find ourselves sort of in this this day and age where I don't know how equipped we are. I think there's some pushback at the church and large in America, sort of, we're, we're sort of shaken, concerned, fearful, How do we, our nation that was founded on sort of biblical principles, the Judeo-Christian sort of um, principles, we're moving away from those, and we now as Christians find ourselves in this weird position. The, I I don't know, we find ourselves, like we as Christians in the United States are abnormal to the rest of the world over Christian history, really. Um, we shouldn't be surprised that the world is moving, our nation is moving away from the, the scriptures. Um, throughout Christian history, the Christians were always cutting against the grain of culture. They were always on the outside. And Peter, during this time, we're going to get more into the, the, what was happening back then. He now is the, the early church leader. The Christians are in the very early seasons of some true persecution, not how we talk about persecution. I'm talking being uh, in coliseums, being fed to wild animals for sport, for show, for entertainment. Um, Parties that were lit by Christians who were burning at the stake, still alive. It was horrible. And so Peter writes this book of hope, of how we're to live in this Um, in this world where we really are strangers. When I get a letter or an email or a text, every now and again, somebody will like text me and I just see the number. I have no idea who it is 
or I barely know who the person is. And it's like, what are they trying to say? And I'll look at it and I say, I see the words. I'm either in a lot of trouble or they're messing with me or they just have a typo. Like it's hard. To, sometimes it's, it's hard to know how to translate it. It could be an email from somebody that I don't know well and I read through it and it's hard to, uh, to understand the heart where if you're face to face with somebody, you can kind of sense that their posture of how they're, of what they're trying to communicate. My, my wife can send me a text and it can make, there can be riddled with typos and errors. And I'll go, oh, I know the person behind the text. I can see what she's saying. And so I can better understand the heart behind it, even if there's just a couple words that I can pick out. And, and I bring this up because Peter is one of these, these letters in the New Testament that we might not be so familiar with, the man Peter. Uh, we've spent a lot of time with Paul. We at this church, we've covered a lot of the letters that Paul wrote. We spent all last year in Romans. And so today, uh, before we really get into Peter, I wanted to take today as a time to sort of to introduce us to Peter, to learn from this man that God used uh, to lead the early church, to, to pen his words. I think as we get to know him, uh, we have, it'll put a little more flesh to his words, that, that we won't just have bones, that we'll be able to sort of understand the picture and the heart behind uh, what he was saying. I've asked you to turn to Matthew. If you turn to Matthew chapter 4, You'll notice behind me, it just says selected passages from Matthew because I felt that I wanted to be merciful to you. Um, when I was a SEAL instructor, there we had a schedule. A lot of times we felt like the students were better off if we didn't tell them what was coming from their perspective. Sometimes, like during Hell Week, I'd say, hey, kids, gather around. Lunch is almost over. I want to read the schedule to you. I'm going to tell you everything that we're about to do until dinner time. And almost always when I would do this on this day, I would get a whole bunch of quitters before we started. I don't want to do that to you today. Uh, so I'm not telling you how many passages we're looking at in Matthew. It's, uh, how to introduce Peter. Peter is a man that is in all of the Gospels, and instead of sort of uh, collating all of the Gospels together and flipping everywhere... I thought I would stick to Matthew because my aim is at the end of the year and going into next year uh, to work through the gospel of Matthew. So I thought I would just stick with one gospel and we'll see what Matthew has to say about Peter. The first place we go is Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And in this verse, it says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And so this is how the scriptures introduce Peter to us. He's a working man. He's a fisherman. You, you have to remove the idea of a fisherman from your mind. That is, uh, you get the guy that has a soda in his lawn chair at Lake Wolford, casting the line out, and then reading a book for the next six hours. And then when he's done with the book, packing up, saying, well, I didn't catch any fish, but I had a good day because I had a good book. Let's go home. That's not the kind of fisherman we're talking. Think the deadliest catch. One of my favorite shows, you know, the, the Alaskan king crab fishermen, they're hard, tough, uh, work around the clock. This is Peter. He, he was a working man. He owned this business, was very successful. Uh, in fact, when you go to the Sea of Galilee today, one of the stops, you'll go and you'll eat St. Peter's fish. It is tilapia. You can get it at Costco. So you can call tilapia St. Peter's fish. They're all in the Sea of Galilee. And so he was a fisherman. He was working. He's a hard, tough, rugged sort of guy. He has a brother that's introduced here. In verse 19, Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. We'll see through Peter's life, through the Gospels in today's story, that, that Peter walked away from his family business. Uh, toward, when Jesus was crucified, he would return to it. And notice this, how Jesus said, follow me to him. At the end of this, when we get through the end of Matthew, we'll see that Jesus 
after his resurrection, gives him the same command again. I love Peter. He's a rugged man. He's a man with passion. He makes all sorts of mistakes. He's outspoken. He's not afraid to to voice his opinion. If you were to go to Josephus, who was a historian during this area, during this era, not area, he was also, in, in addition to being a historian, he served as the governor of the region of Galilee. And in his writings, he describes Galilean men as sort of rugged, tough, outspoken, uh, quick to lead an insurrection uh, against the government. Everything he says about the, the men of Galilee, Peter fits the mold perfectly. And so here's this tough man. Uh, if you'll turn with me a couple pages to Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 15. And I want you all to use uh, the, the skill of deduction. And so there in Matthew 18, this is what we read, verse 15, uh, verse 14, excuse me. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. So that we see that this, this setting happens in Peter's house. They often came and went in Peter's home. And when they got there, they see that Peter's mother-in-law was very ill. So if Peter had a mother-in-law, that means Peter had a wife. He was a married man. He likely had children. We don't know if he was married and his wife had died or she's there and silent in the Gospels. We don't know, but he was a very man. He, he lived a very normal life. He was a, a, a hard-working, blue-collared, merry man, has a mother-in-law, She's sick. If you make the journey to Israel the next time we go, in the northern part of the Galilee, you'll find a town, Capernaum. This is the region where they lived. You go there today, and you can see the Peter's mother-in-law's house. Uh, don't start thinking it's a house like your house. It's literally probably four or five or ten feet across, some rocks around it, and a spaceship on top of it. It's sarcasm with the spaceship, but it looks like a spaceship. The Catholic Church built this huge space look, spaceship-looking building, and it has a glass floor, so you can walk over the top of it and look to the gravel below you and look into to Peter's mother-in-law's house. So from this, we see that he's a, a really a common, normal, average guy. His mother-in-law is sick. Jesus heals her. Peter observes a lot of the miracles. His mother-in-law gets up. She serves him. She seems to be a very a Martha with that sort of spirit of servanthood. Um, so from here, we're going to turn over a couple chapters to, to Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, we see the calling of the disciples as apostles. And so it begins, Jesus summoned the 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter. Anywhere in the New Testament where you see the names of the 12 apostles listed, Peter is always first. I, I don't know if he was, I believe he was a little bit older than the other guys. I feel that his personality type, uh, when you're in a group of people, there's always one that seems to whether it's by, normally it's not by appointment. If there's any situation, there always is sort of that person that rises to the occasion that sort of naturally becomes the leader uh, for whatever reasons. And Peter seems to be this guy. Uh, he, he is always listed first as the church is founded. He's, he's the one who leads the other church all through the gospels. He seems to be the one that has questions that everybody is thinking, but he's the only one who has the courage to ask. Um, of the list of 12, um, I, I think I fast forward some, but I want to make, um, well, we're in chapter 10 here. We're in chapter 10. Um, the first three that are always listed, it's Peter, James, and John. James and John are brothers. And John, John is... Uh, the youngest one, he would, he would write the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, he was very much Jesus' kid brother. When, when he was crucified, Jesus looked to John and said, John, this is my mother. 
she's now your mother. Mary, this is your son. Uh, kind of telling John to care for his mom. He would be the only one to die a natural death. It doesn't mean that they didn't try to kill him. It means that they were unsuccessful. Um, at the end of his life, he started out as the youngest guy. Uh, John is now the oldest guy. Um, and these three guys, Peter, James, and John, they were allowed access um, to occasions with Jesus that the others were not allowed. Uh, we're not going to look at jo- Matthew 17, verse 1. And that story, you don't, you don't have to turn there. It's the, the story of the transfiguration. Jesus goes up on a hill. He allows Peter, James, and John to go to, to witness this word Jesus. It says that, that basically he was transfigured. In Romans 12, 1, the same word is used for trans, transformation, that he began to glow, sort of he exposed his deity in order for uh, these guys to see. It said that Elijah and I want to say Moses, uh, Elijah and another guy, I think it was Moses, I'm probably wrong. I barely get your guys' name straight, so it's nothing personal. It's uh, Peter opens his mouth. He's there. The night in which Jesus is betrayed, after they leave, they, they walk down the Mount of Olives. They go to um, Gethsemane, the olive press. Jesus walks his guys. He takes the, uh, let's see here, there were 12. You lose one, so now you're down to 11. You minus three. He takes eight guys. He sets them there. He takes the three, Peter, James, and John, a little bit closer. He sets these three down, and he says, pray with me. And he is a short distance from them. Peter, James, and John's Peter is the man we're focusing on. He was given special access to a number of things. I don't know if these were like Jesus' special projects amongst the twelve. Peter would lead the early church. John would basically take the church to the very end. Uh, James was um, murdered for his faith very early on. So there was some sort of unique plan for each one of them. Okay, from here, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 14, verse 28. And I want to look at the intensity of Peter. This is, I love his zeal, his intensity, his boldness. He's not afraid to step out. In this case, it's literally step out. Uh, earlier in the story here, Jesus had sent the apostles on in the boat to go to the other side. He stayed back so he could have some quiet time or prayer time. He, he, he needed some distance. He was done. Then he's going to catch up with the guys. So Jesus is God. He can just walk across the lake. And so he walks to them. It's dark. They see him. They begin to get this image. Somebody's walking to and they're on wall. Maybe I'm seeing a ghost. And then they, the Jesus responds, hey, it's just me. Relax. It's okay. And we pick up in verse 28. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I love this. Like Peter says, Jesus, if that's you, you need to command me to walk to you. Jesus says, okay, I'm game. Come on. Verse 29, he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on water and he came to Jesus. Now, when people asked, you know, if you're ever watching Jeopardy and he says, well, I don't even see, I'm not smart enough to figure out how they would phrase the statement to get the question out of you. Because we would say, the answer would be, who is Jesus? Um, I walked on water, right? Okay, I think that's Jeopardy. You know, mysterious encounters. I walked on water. The answer would be, ding, ding, ding. Who is Jesus? We think that there's only one person who walked on water. But two people walked on water. Peter also walked on water. And we always sort of just sort of blow this off because it, you know, it didn't, like he wasn't always able to walk on water. I don't know about anybody here. Have, has anybody here tried to walk on water? I'm not, I've tried to walk on water multiple times. <laughs> I checked it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I'm like, okay, maybe if I just need to go really fast, I'm going to run. <laughs> and it's like, I can't do it. But it would be cool. Peter did it. He gets out and he walks and he gets close enough to where Jesus can reach when he sinks. And all we remember is his failure that, that he, I, and it wasn't failure. I don't, it says that his faith that he, he began to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me, Jesus. But let's not forget that in his book, he actually walked, two people walked on water. And Peter was one of them. And it was because of this boldness. Like who would think that Jesus is walking Say, Jesus, if that's you, command me to walk to you. Like, that's awesome. All of the other guys just said, just come on over, Jesus. We'll just (laughs) hop on. 
Okay, so we see his boldness. We see his questions on the other page here, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 15. Jesus had been, he had been teaching. He, he was in a setting with Pharisees and, and scribes and those of the law. And he, he, was, he was sharing with them that it's not, it's not your religion. It's not your externals that makes you clean. It's, it's not what you put into your mouth that defiles you. It's that your heart is defiled and what comes out of you defiles you. And I believe that Jesus was teaching at this level and they're all sitting there going, I'm following, I'm tracking. I'll never forget it was before I went to Mongolia, Joshua Ong had invited Richard and I to go to eat. um, It's the other Olive Garden, Macaroni Express or Macaroni, whatever it is. There's a lot of people talking. He sets us down with these people who are in Beijing. We were going to fly through Beijing. We were going to meet them. They're talking about stuff. The whole time I'm nodding going, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Towards the end, the guys, they all work for Qualcomm. Eventually, they mentioned 3G. And I go, oh, 3G. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he, he looks at me and he's like, you, didn't, you haven't understood a word what we were talking about, have you? And I'm like, Oh, man, I just sold myself out because I blurted out like, finally, after an hour, I get something. I was so embarrassed. Later, I sent a note thanking them for having us to dinner. And then I realized I was responding to like postgraduate at MIT. And I'm like, okay, I was so out of my league trying to like. (laughs) And so I think this is how they were with Jesus. Okay, but Peter's like, verse 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Like he wasn't afraid to ask the questions. You follow Peter through the gospels. He always was the student that would like ask the question that sort of everybody was able to ask. And Jesus responds like he explains the parable. He breaks it down for them. Um, he had a lot of questions. He, he had moments, turn the page over to Matthew chapter 16. A, a lot of this, like the walking on water, he had a high spot followed by a low spot. Um, so walk, he, he got the whole walking on water. He made it to Jesus, but then he had to swim back or Jesus carried him back. Um, here's another setting where there's a very high place. So in Matthew chapter 16, we'll begin in verse 13. They, uh, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking the disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? So there's two Caesareas in Israel. There's one that's on the coast. Um, it's, it's Herod's great palace, beautiful Club Med. It's, it's a beautiful place to go. Northeast from there is this place, Caesarea Philippi. It's one of the three springs that feeds into the Jordan River. During this time, if you go there today, you can see the remnant. You can see the huge cliff with all the markings. It was a, a hotbed for paganism because they thought spirits... We're, we're basically under the ground where the springs came up. There's a whole bunch of stuff. So it was, there was all sorts of different religions, false gods, all sorts of things in this setting. And so the apostles are there, Jesus is there. In the midst of this pagan worship, he begins asking them, who do people say that the Son of Man is, referring to himself? And the apostles begin to respond. And they said, verse 15, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah uh, but still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. They say, well, there's all, people are saying all kinds of stuff about you. They think you're John the Baptist. They think you're Elijah. They think this. They think that. And then Jesus says, but who do you guys say that I am? And Peter, in his boldness, his zeal, he stands up. and he, I don't know if he stands up, but he answered. I imagine he said, you are the Christ. That means Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for the Greek, the, the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. He knows. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. He says, Peter, on your proclamation that I am the Christ, I am the foundation of the church which is to come. It's all about Jesus. And I just see Peter going... Nailed that one. I knew it. And he's going to go from hero to hobo in seconds. Go to verse 21. I mean, right 
right here. He said, okay, you guys got it. Don't tell anybody that I'm going to Christ. There's some things that need to fulfill. The message sort of adjusts in 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, or maybe not adjust. I think he began to reveal to them more about the plan that was unfolding in their midst. So from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He begins sharing the gospel. I'm going to be executed. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be raised again. He begins preparing them, explaining to them this, this plan that would, would come from amidst us. And Peter, who had just answered so greatly, if he just shut up, history would have had it like he would have been a different man but i'm so thankful he did it i'm so thankful that the scriptures record him as he is as as he was and to see how god uses us humans who are not perfect because we are only christ is perfect and so peter goes from answering correctly to putting his foot in his mouth peter took him aside so peter takes the messiah the christ he pulls him aside into the back corner and he begins to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord. Don't miss the irony of this. Jesus is the Messiah whom Peter just declared that he is the son of, like he acknowledges that he's God. Then he pulls God to the side and says, God forbid it, Lord. (laughs) You see the irony there? Like he's trying to correct God for what God has just revealed to him. And basically, Peter says, get behind me, Satan. Like, so he just says, with what you just said, I'm going to build the church. Attaboy. Two seconds later, next time, get behind me, Satan. You are way out of line. And I love this, like, hero to hoboness of Peter. He succeeds, he fails. Then we're going to move along. Uh, More questions, more questions to... Uh, Chapter 19, move to chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 27. This is another question of his that I really enjoy. Peter had sacrificed a lot. He'd walked away from his family trade. He asked the question that I think many of us have wrestled with, especially in this life. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have lost everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Okay, I gave up everything and I followed you, Jesus. What am I going to get out of this? <laughs> like, what's my reward? What do I get? And, and I think that some of us think, well, if I, you know, I think some of us are taught like, oh, if you follow Jesus, you'll be, there'll be much reward. You'll get stuff. Uh, the prosperity gospel, which I don't really hold to, I, well, I don't. I strike that I do not hold to. Um, but Peter says, I've given up everything. What do I, what would I get? And Jesus is, I, I love the, the, the sensitivity of Christ with Peter, this bold, um, zealous, excited, just wants to charge. He asked Jesus, we gave all away. What, what now? What do we get? In the heart of Jesus, he, he, he answers, but he doesn't answer in this life. We know that Peter was crucified for his faith. And when he was about to be crucified, history holds that as he was going to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the manner in which my Lord was crucified. And so they did him a favor and they crucified him upside down so that he would not be crucified like his Lord, which is powerful. And Jesus answers him and he says, basically, in the future, not in this life, when I'm in my glory, you 12 will, will sit over the 12 tribes of Israel. You can read it. It's... Then fast forwarding to 26, the stories were getting closer to the crucifixion. They finished the Lord's Supper. They are, they've sung a song at the top of... of um, where are we at? So let me tell you, where. since you guys don't have the verses, I'm getting ahead of myself. Matthew 26, verse 33. I think, uh, yeah, I'm in the wrong chapter. Um, really, in verse 30, we're going to pick up. They're, they're at the top of Mount of Olives. This is 
Um, there's pictures that you see people up on the hill, and in the distance you can see the Golden Dome. You guys are familiar with that picture? That's where they're standing looking at the temple. And it says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Man of Olives. That's where that, that spot where they're, they're, they're standing looking over to um, the temple. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But I have been raised. I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter opens his mouth and boldness and zeal. And I love this guy. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will not fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. This is like boldness. This is, I, I see like brothers in combat. I will not fail you. I will not turn my back on you. And Jesus says, you will. By the time the sun rises, it's going to be a whole different world. We don't have to get far. Uh, work your way to the end of this very chapter. Jesus is eventually arrested. As he's hauled away, they're trying to get the trial set up in the, in the cloak of darkness. Uh, Peter is following at a distance, not to be associated, but, 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 but to, to be close enough to see what's happening. And we come to verse 69. And I said, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know this man. So basically he's swearing like before God, I give my word on the Holy Bible. If he had it, I don't know Jesus. A little while later, verse 33, bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you two are one of them for even the way you talk gives you away. He's from the Galilee. They were hillbillies. It would be like being in Southern California and a guy from Alabama wearing his Alabama college shirt Speaking in Alabama talk, I don't know that guy. What are you talking about? He's like, you are not from San Diego. You talk just like them. Who do you think you are trying to, to paint this picture that you're not from Galilee? And I look at 74. Then he began to curse and swear. This is the one that there's some like commentators get funny. There's two ways you can translate this. The first is that Peter started dropping a few F-bombs started swearing and then in christian commentators like oh no 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 saint peter wouldn't have dropped an f like whatever it was in hebrew and i think it'd be way better if he made an oath but if you really think about it i would take the profanity over i swear before the living god that i don't know this jesus i do not know which is what that is way worse than the other. I always get confused between the former and the latter, so I'm not going to say which one it was. <laughs> I think that the profanity would have been way better than swearing. I, I'm not sure. We see that he already took an oath previously. And in verse 7, it will write in that very thing, as he's swearing, I do not know the man, and immediately the rooster crowed. At that crow, Peter remembered the word what Jesus had said. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Don't, don't just read over this. I hope you can feel the brokenness of this man who continually failed. And there was no greater failure than here, walking away from the Lord, denying, hearing what the Lord would say. This is ultimate failure, brokenness. This weeping bitterly, this tarred man is now broken. I believe he probably felt at this point that he was no longer usable by the Lord. And the last thing I want to look at is if you turn with me over to John chapter 21. We're back on track to the PowerPoint behind me. In John chapter 21, 
written by the Apostle John, one of the three, who wrote this at the end of his life. Peter had been crucified at this point in his life. He begins to write, Jesus had appeared already two times to them. This is the third time in which Jesus would appear to them. And we read after these things, verse 1, Jesus manifested himself again to the the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, that's the Sea of Galilee, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, that means the twin, and uh, Nathaniel of of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that's John and James, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will come also with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him and said, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast and Then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the author of this letter, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now notice Peter's reaction. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. This is a just a glimpse into the way I think. If I'm out on a boat and I want to go to shore and I have clothes on, what I do is I strip down so you can swim. I've already confessed to you that I've tried walking on water multiple times unsuccessfully. I see Peter, and this isn't, this is just what Gunnar thinks. This is not, I'm not, this is no claim to being. I see Peter put on his, give me my clothes. I'm walking, I'm going to show, I'm going to redeem myself. Throws on his stuff and he sinks and he basically gets to the shoreline and they come in. And so then Jesus begins to cook them breakfast of fish. In verse 9, I want to point out the word. It says, um, so when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire. Uh, A couple of people will find this interesting in here. This word charcoal, it's only used twice in the Gospel of John. The only time it's a very unique word that it's used is used at Peter's denial, the same word is used at his denial in the Gospel of John when he denied Christ three times. And there seems to be a connecting of these two stories. Uh, that This story, what we're about to read, is Peter being recommissioned by the Lord. Down to verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? I'm not sure what the these were. Was it his business, his fishing? He's gone back to fishing. Was he talking about the men, his life? Do you love me more than all of this? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. Jesus asked, said to him a second time, Simon of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He, that's Jesus, said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon of John, do you love me? Now this third time, like in the Greek, there's this play of words. It all comes out as love in the English. But it moves from agape to phileo. Like, are you even a friend of mine sort of thing? And in this third time, you see the anguish of Peter. Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? Earlier, when he denied him and the rooster crowed, there's that grieving, that weeping of Peter, this broken man of failure. And I think here he is, he's just broken, like he's failed the Lord. And Jesus keeps asking, do you love me? He says, yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. 
do you even like me? Yes, Lord. Like, I, I don't even know what to do. You know I do. And Jesus, for the third time, says, Ted, my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. Shepherd the church. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of, the, of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Remember when I told you at his commission, what did he say? Follow me. He says, follow me again. This man, Peter, walked closely with Jesus. He had access to things that very few other people had access to. He had success, he had failure. He, was, he had brokenness, he had restoration by Christ. He had this Jesus telling him to shepherd my sheep. And so after Jesus ascends, and if we were to follow into the story of Acts, which we're not, you can turn back to First Peter, and I want to just sort of tell you about Acts. Well, what do we see about Peter? In Acts chapter 1, Judas had hung himself. Now they're down to 11 apostles. They start talking, we need to have 12. The scripture says 12. Peter leads the, the dialogue and the decision for calling Matthias as, as the 12th apostle. In Acts chapter 2, the spirit comes, Pentecost happens. Who stands up to give the first sermon in church history? It's no other than the apostle Peter. Peter preaches, he shares the gospel, 3,000 come to faith. In chapter 3, see, I'm going to my memory, he heals somebody. In chapter 3, he's going in to pray. There's a guy begging for money, and Peter says, we don't have money to offer you, but look at, look at me. Do you, not me, this is what Peter said to the guy, just to kind of like, I'm not going seal instructor on you all. <laughs> like that sounded, but Peter says, look at me. Do you, do you want to be healed? He stands the guy up, the guy's like leaping and jumping and there's a kid's song to that, and praising God. <laughs> and gets Peter into all kinds of trouble. And so then in chapter 4, Peter's standing before the, the, the religious authorities, the Sanhedrin. And they're saying, did you do this? He said, if we're, just to be clear, if, we're, if, this, if you're talking about this guy who has been lame from birth, who you all knew, who stands here healed because of the name of Christ, yes, I did that. And they said, well, don't do that anymore. I don't care what you guys say. You can find me guilty, but I will not cease speaking of the things of God and who Christ is. Chapter 5, we see sin creep into the early church. This couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they give a huge portion of money, but they lie about the amount in which they give. They were free to give whatever they wanted. And Peter was used by God to handle this disciplinary action in the early church. We fast forward to chapter 8, Simon the Sorcerer, another guy trying to utilize the spirit for making of money, and it's Peter who leads the discipline and the rebuking of this man. Chapter 9, there's a healing of, uh, I, I, I forget the girl's name right now, but a girl is raised from the dead by Peter. Chapter 10, Peter has his vision of all the barbecue of you know bacon and pork and all kinds of good stuff. He says, I, I, Lord, I would never put anything unclean to my lips. And God says, don't call what I've created unclean. That's why we can eat bacon today, I believe. If you don't want your bacon, I'll have it. That's fine, just for the record. But then he goes to Cornelius at Caesarea. And the first Gentile is learned, led to Christ. This, he receives the Spirit. By chapter 11, Peter's defending what he did with the Judaizers. And I do believe that this is an issue that Peter struggled with through the course of his, his ministry. How does he act around his Jewish brethren who he's called to reach? The Judaizers who said you had to maintain certain law and they infringed upon grace. I think Peter was really torn. So much so that Paul writes in Galatians that he had to confront Peter. And we're quick to judge Peter. But I, I'm just thankful for this. I, I find this, when I... When I first became a Christian, and I was around Christian folk, you weirdos, like the, I could act. I knew, okay, I'm around Christians. I'm supposed to act this way. I'm supposed to tuck in my shirt. I, you don't have to tuck in your shirt. This is just what I went through. I thought I was supposed to look a certain way, talk a certain way. 
But then I found myself around my SEAL buddies who are not Christians. And how do I act here? And I want to be, I want to be in this world, but how does this world fit over here? And I struggled with like, what jokes are appropriate? I still struggle in those circles with what jokes are appropriate. Like, how do I be all things to all men while honor Christ at the same time? And I feel like Peter, when he was around his Jewish brethren, especially those that held and maintained the tradition and the diet, how do you maintain that line? And I love that Peter is not perfect. And so we come to First Peter. And as we enter this book, and as I looked at the life of Peter and his zeal, his heart, this final commissioning of the Lord to him, shepherd my sheep. When we see him in Acts, when we see him in First and Second Peter, he is a pastor's pastor. He, he shepherds the sheep as though because Jesus himself mentored him, discipled him, prepared him. Uh, he's he's a, a pastor who's failed. He's a pastor who's been broken down and lifted up by Christ. And one of the dangers I know when, you know, Ben and I have had a lot of drive time. We, we drove to LA and back twice this last week, which is not normal for us. So we, you know, once we like drop our people off, then we can start talking theology and start going, ah. and so one of the things coming back from LAX the other day, we started like wrestling through about like, you know, Ben's like, I just like doctrine. I'm not a storyteller. I mean, he likes more. I, I have the floor now so I can make fun of him however I want. <laughs> but so one of the things that we kind of talked about is like, there has to be a danger when you start looking at the person and there's truth. Like, like Peter, this first Peter all of this, from Genesis to Revelation, God is the author. He is the one. Now, in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, Peter writes this. He says, But know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so what he's saying here, this is divine revelation. As we look at Peter... I had a teacher or a professor who, who made this statement that it for always like kind of convicted me. He mentioned like he's like who here has the Bibles with red print? And a couple people raised their hand. I didn't. I you know I'm not the guy that does that. Um, if you want me to raise my hand, I'll be stubborn not do it just because you asked me to do it. Uh, that's another issue I've been working on. Um, but his point was he's like the trap we fall into with red letter Bibles is we feel that the red letters are more important than the black letters. The reality is from Genesis to Revelation, they all could be red letters because they're all from the Lord, period. And so now the Lord in his sovereignty and his majesty, I don't know how, but God uses individuals, their men, their personality, their experiences, and he moves through them. And so I feel it's important to understand who Peter is as we look at this, to understand the context because it's, it's powerful. What do we know about Peter? He walked with Jesus. He lived with him. He, he made mistakes in his midst. He, he, was, he was restored through Christ. And so when he writes through these words, there's, a, there's an intensity here. There's a power here that, that, that is important for us. I'd mentioned the, the persecution that was growing. They were entering a time under Nero. Christianity was no longer really viewed as, as a sect within Judaism. It was sort of being viewed as its own, as its own I don't want to say religion or its own grouping. And, and so th- there, there was less and less protection and so horrible, horrible things were happening to the Christians. And this was the very beginning. They would put carcasses on humans, strap them, throw them into the arena with wild dogs, and they'd be devoured for entertainment, like monster truck rally sort of thing. When Nero would have parties, he would have pools set up, and he would put Christians alive and set them on fire to light the party. It was a persecution that we don't get in America. And so out of this heart of Peter, tend my sheep, tend my sheep, things, important subjects, deep subjects that are going to require all of us to think, 
salvation, persecution, Christian living, the church, end times, the judgment of God. These are things that come out in Peter's writing. And so with that, we look at the very first verse. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he identifies himself as the author. They knew who Peter was. I had to give us the backdrop so we know who this author is. This is the guy who walked on water. This is the guy who sank. This is the guy that said, you're Christ the Messiah to be rebuked by Jesus or he rebuked Jesus. This is the guy that denied Christ. This is the guy who was broken, who Jesus restored. This is a guy who was married. This is a man who was commissioned by the by Jesus to be his apostle. And he says, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are, okay, I'm going to stop there. If you can go to the next slide, please. Here's a map. I want to orientate you really quick. This is Israel. This is Jerusalem down here. Up here is Italy, the boot, and there's Rome. Peter writes 1 Peter from Rome. All of these areas, I'm going to get them backwards. You see all the red arrows. These are the Christians that he's writing to in Pontus. It's not a city, it's a region. So this area is Pontus. This region is Cappadocia. This is the Galatian region. This is Bithynia region. This is Asia region. It's modern day Turkey. You can go back. So he says, I'm Peter the apostle. I'm writing to you. The, the people I'm writing to are the churches located in these regions. It was a circular letter that would be delivered to all of them. In each stop, they would copy the letter, they would send it on, and the, the word from Peter the Apostle would go forth. It said, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, all of the cities, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So there's a couple issues here. No, not issues. They're, so who reside as aliens who are chosen. These are two sort of things that are like, okay, what is, what is Peter saying here? In the English, it doesn't come out as clear as in the Greek. Aliens can be translated. Uh, this is not like Martians. This is aliens, sojourners, exiles. This is how that word could be used. Now, exiles, these people, the Gentiles and Jews there, at this point, they weren't necessarily scattered to this region. They were from this region. And you start thinking, well, what is he talking about? If you read through 1 Peter, more and more what you're going to see about this exiles, the sojourners, it deals with the believer's citizenship. And this is an area that I struggled with as a patriotic, red-blooded American who was a Navy SEAL sitting through church, suddenly learning for the first time in my Christian life that I held dual citizenship. And if you're a Christian, you hold dual citizenship. In Philippians 3.20, it makes it clear that everyone who is trusted in Christ, their citizenship is in heaven. The way we think, the way we believe, the things that we do, we are always going to cut across the culture of, that we live in. And so they're not necessarily aliens and exiles because they've been uh, relocated to a foreign land. They're aliens because... They are believers in Christ and their citizenship is in heaven. Now, this whole who are chosen at this point, we're not talking about salvation. In the English, it appears to be a verb. It's actually an adverb connected with aliens. So it's um, explaining the, like this sojourner, this wanderer, as he's being, being in a different land. It's saying that you're in this place you're going to face this persecution. You're outsiders, everything. You're going to face persecution. But this falls under the sovereignty of God that the Father, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that it's no accident. So the suffering and the pain and the sorrow that you, the church, are about to go through in this region during this time under Nero you can stand firm knowing that this did not escape the sovereignty of God and you can have joy and you can have peace in the midst of it. He goes on, we see the Trinity, the foreknowledge of God that they are chosen aliens in these regions by this sanctifying work of the Spirit. So now we see the Holy Spirit, this process of sanctification. Sanctification, I'm not going to go into the various aspects 
the, the, the basic understanding of the theological term to be sanctified, it's the process of moving you from this position more to Christ, this work that happens as sort of this, this cleansing process. Ultimate sanctification will not happen in this life. But I'm, a, I'm way more holy, way more set apart for God today than I was 15 years ago or 16 years ago when God began to get a hold of me. Because the Spirit has been working in my life and He's working in your life. He goes on to say, to obey Jesus Christ, there's a third person of the Trinity, and to be sprinkled with his blood. So he sees this. You're in your place under God's sovereignty. You've believed. The Spirit is sanctifying and moving you so that you would obey Christ. That should sound familiar to the Great Commission. It was in Matthew 28, 20, when Jesus last spoke to Peter and the rest of the apostles, he said, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. And so Peter now writes that here the Spirit is leading you in your spiritual journey with Christ so that you would obey him, be sprinkled with his blood, this cleansing. And he says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. It's funny, people have different thoughts. What's the purpose and and point of Peter? And maybe my opinion will adjust as I teach through it. But here I think is at the heart, he says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. If you turn with me to the very end, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, midway through, Peter writes, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So he says everything that he's writing within this book falls under the banner that this is the grace of God. And then he gives the command, stand firm in it. And so as we take communion today, communion doesn't save you. Communion is for the Christian first and foremost. It has nothing to do with church membership. You can be from wherever, whatever. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, communion is for you. There are crackers up here. There are juice up here. The crackers symbolize Jesus' broken body on the cross. Jesus was without sin on the cross when he died. He was paying the penalty for our sins according to the scriptures that he suffered the wrath of God for us. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again. The blood or the juice symbolizes the new covenant, that we have life, we have hope, our security, our, our hope. Everything is bound in Christ. It's not based on works. When we understand that we've received this grace, and peace in the foolish measure that, that, that Peter's writing to us, It's not based on works. I'm so thankful. If we based our relationship on God that it was contingent on our works, we would all be in trouble. But he says, I paid it all. I paid it all. And so the communion reminds us of what Christ did for us. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to pray. You can come up. You can receive the elements. You can return to your seat. And you can take communion uh, when you're ready. Uh, We're going to sing a couple songs. And I'll be it. So, Father, we do thank you again, Lord, for this this epistle in your scriptures. Father, we, um, Lord, I'm thankful for Peter. I think I'm just thankful for all of the men and women in the scriptures, Lord, that you um, left their story for us to learn about you, Lord. Their failure, failures, their fears, their mistakes, seeing your gracious hand restore them, encourage them, continue to use them. And Father, you do the same thing with us. Lord, I thank you for your your mercifulness to me, your graciousness, Lord, to me. Father, I thank you for each person who's here. Father, as we prepare to take communion, Lord, I pray that you would show us our sin, our failures, that we could confess it to you, that we would be washed again anew. Father, we pray that you would help us to get a greater understanding of the cross, of your death, burial, and resurrection, Lord. I I think of that song we sing, that we'll never know how much it cost. 
and we really can't understand, but I pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand the gravity of our sin. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have made us new. Father, we pray for those that we know we love that don't know you as Savior. We pray that you would use us, Lord, to share the gospel with them in some way. For we know that that our time of sharing will end when you return. So, Father, we thank you. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.